right, KISS Army. Welcome to the KISS FAQ Podcast. Thank you for giving us your time today and letting us into your head. I hope we don't do any damage. We hope that you enjoy. 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 Welcome to episode, well, whatever. It's another episode of the Kiss FAQ podcast. I'm your host, Julian Gill. <laughs> Today I'm joined by um, Six Knife Blizzard Ken. Hello there. Uh, Wheeze Daniel. Hello. And Marcus Almighty Mark. Greetings, everyone. How is everyone doing? And has anyone bought any Kiss stuff this week? Ken. <laughs> yeah, as we were figuring it out, I was going to. But I, I'm trying to think. Did I buy any uh, kiss stuff? I don't. I don't think I bought any kiss stuff. I bought something else, but it wasn't kiss. So mm, yes, I bought something else too, and it wasn't kiss. All right. Well, <laughs> that was a quick segment. Well, thanks for all joining us, and we'll see you next time. <laughs> um, top of this show this week is um, news. Today is uh, Jamie Oldiker, drummer. One time with Frelly's Comets, I think he played with Peter Frampton, and a, I mean he he was a drummer's drummer as well. So he passed away, lived in Tulsa, and apparently he'd been suffering from cancer the past few years and succumbed to that rather than any of the other health issues that one immediately associates with Tulsa at the moment. Um, so condolences to his uh, family and friends and fans of his work. Um, other late breaking news: I don't think there really is much of anything um kiss solo no. box was on sale yeah i was gonna say that the kiss solo albums were on sale for a good price and then i think you could could knock off another 20 percent yeah on top of that that's where i took my i didn't get that because i had that already but i took advantage of it uh got the uh, abba colored vinyl um Ooh, instead yeah. and i saved i saved a ton of money on that Nice. Super trooper. There you go. I remember Waterloo. I loved that. Waterloo. SOS. Yeah. Oh, they have a good no. Yeah. Sweden represented. Yes. That's right. Yes. They have a great museum in Stockholm about ABBA. If you're ever in Stockholm, you should check that out. It's just next to Gröna Lund, you know, the famous venue where. Kiss and Gene have played. So Daniel, I gotta ask then. So yeah. are ABBA looked at as like the greatest export out of Sweden ever? Like they've sold like a gazillion albums, so they must be looked at as one of the greatest things from Sweden ever. No, no yes, sure. But back in the day, they were you know sellouts. Uh, oh, all, all about the money uh, and, and that kind <laughs> of stuff. But nowadays they are like uh, almost holy. You know, <laughs> yeah. So and, uh, and of it course, was a good uh, band. yeah. And was Great is band. it Polar Studios? Is that where they recorded? It became Polar, like yeah. Yeah, yeah. the Swedish yeah. Abbey Road because I know Metallica yeah, recorded so. there as well. So, yeah. mm-hmm. all right, oh, yeah. very, very interesting tangent. We're going to the board today, just for a bunch of topics that people are discussing. Um, well, some of them anyway. One of the, the good ones is from this week in 1985. Live Aid took place in, what was it, Washington, D.C., or was it Philly and London? I always forget. I know I was tuned in because back then, funny. yeah, I was waiting to see Duran Duran. I wasn't interested. Uh, yes. I wasn't interested in Zeppelin. Wasn't interested in Sabbath. I was really oh, I was. interested in, uh, mm. what was it? Was it uh, Power Station? 
and Duran Duran. So, yeah. Uh, okay. yeah. Hmm. I, I got to say, though, that Black Sabbath thing, for all that waiting, when I finally saw it, it was the old hand to the forehead situation. Like, oh, my God. It, it, it was pretty brutal. <laughs> so that's the first question for you guys to think about. Um, so obviously Live Aid took place. Paul Stanley has been photographed backstage. Mm-hmm. But Kiss, if Kiss had performed at Live Aid, and it seems that the majority of bands that did sets did three song sets. So what three songs do you think Kiss would have performed or which three songs would you have liked Kiss to perform? Why don't I start off with uh, Daniel for that one? Well, I think they they um, they would have tried to be contemporary, so they would play a few of the newer songs. I'm sure they would play uh, "Heavens on Fire" uh, and maybe "Tears Are Falling" or "Lick It Up," but uh, they would have to include one or two classics as well. But I think it's a no-brainer. They they would quit with you know rock and roll all night. So I think they would play two pretty new songs and end things off with rock and roll all night. And I'm, I think that would be uh, the way to do it, you know, being contemporary and at the same time show their history because it's a, such a small window to make an impact. So they would have to bring the, the big guns, so to speak. Yeah, interesting. So, uh, Ken, what would be your picks and what do you think that they would do? Okay, well... <laughs> I'll tell you what I think they would do first. Um, and I was thinking about this earlier. Uh, I'm, I'm in the same boat here as Daniel. Um, I think they would have been trying to promote their their current, you know, uh, releases. So I would have said, lick it up and heaven's on fire. Definitely. And I agree they would have done rock and roll all night because it seemed that well, you have to do that every time and anywhere they go and anything they're on. So those are the three. Now, what I would have liked them to do uh, wouldn't have been contemporary. I mean, it would have been probably for me, it would have been like Black Diamond, uh, maybe I Stole Your Love and uh, throw something in there. Maybe just what the heck throw. I was made for loving you in there for the other types of fans out yeah. there that are not you know, hard rock kind of fans out there. So that's what I would do. Good ideas. All right, Mark, have at it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I think honestly what they would have probably did would be something like open with Detroit Rock City, then do uh, Heavens on Fire as their, you know, something very current. Because I don't think Asylum came out by that point yet. I don't think it was out then, was it? Nope. No, I think it no, came not, in September. Yeah, or yeah. September, so, yeah, so they, they just started in the studio around this time. Yeah. yeah, so they wouldn't have played that. And I think for sure they would have closed with Rock and Roll Night. Now, the interesting thing is you said a lot of bands played three songs. Um, from what I remember, a lot of the bands were given a certain time limit because I know Queen was given like 25 minutes to play and they had like a little stoplight thingy on the stage where it was like green, you can keep playing. Yellow, you got like two minutes till you got to get off stage. And then th- when the red light came off, you got cut off. Apparently power got cut because they wanted to oh. keep it so like flowing perfectly. Mm-hmm. So it was interesting. But you know what? Just a little side note uh, on this. Um, I had this exact same conversation on my Yes podcast because we were scratching our heads wondering how the hell was Yes not on this? They had their biggest album probably a year ago in 90125 and they didn't get asked to play on Live Aid. I don't understand that at all. So. Another head scratcher. 
Yeah. All right. So I'm uh, I'm in total agreement with Daniel about Heaven's on Fire. I think they would have pushed something current. I think it obviously is Rock and Roll All Night would be the last song. And then I think they would push new product. And Andy Moyne reminded me this week that uh, July, this week of July, is when the reissue of Creatures of the Night came out. So I think they would have promoted some new product and probably or possibly have done something off that, which um, I'm going to go with I Love It Loud, for, yeah. because what would be better playing in a stadium, which they just didn't get to do that mm-hmm. often, of mm-hmm. maybe trying to revisit the insanity of the South American audience with Philadelphians or wherever it was uh, for the U.S. one, so... There we go. For once, I'm going with uh, creatures. Now, hmm. what would I, what would I have liked? Well, I think that yeah. with the reissues of, which were coming out in '85 uh, of cassettes and Polygram doing the whole catalog, something off the Elder. But <laughs> <laughs> that's that's just not going to fly. All right, moving on to another band that didn't play it. Live Aid, surprisingly, Aerosmith. Obviously, I'm still working on that. But I, I found a quote when I was going through some uh, interviews and newspaper stuff this week that was kind of interesting that I think is worthy of commentary on. Um, Joe Perry says, Kiss gets an A for effort. Their comeback was very timely. They set a trend that a lot of bands are following, and now they seem to be just trying to fit in with a watered-down version of what they once did. So this is done with Mirrors era Joe Perry. Um, while Aerosmith was doing their first album that was, uh, from their reunion after doing, uh, being on tour the previous year, they go out and have a pretty good tour. You know, they were doing 17,000, 18,000 seaters sold out, but they were also playing to 3,000 in some markets like Florida, having some of the same issues that Kiss had. Now, what do you think about his comments towards kiss and what they had done with these additional members around that period had they become a watered down version of themselves um rather than the vibrant band that they once were ken let's go to you Uh, start off with reason yeah well (laughs) that quote was from uh 86 right that quote yeah so um i don't know if uh they, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, it doesn't surprise me because um, he knew, you know, Joe Perry knew what Kiss was definitely back in the 70s when they toured with them and, and the, the makeup and the costume. So from that standpoint, yeah, it's it's kind of uh, watered down because they're kind of every other band in a way, um, though they still try to put on the big show. Um, as far as the music, yeah, I mean, I think it's just a matter of them trying to uh, fit in with the times, you know, with the other bands out there. And and they're kind of, you know, this is when they are kind of starting to follow the trends uh, and so on out there in the 80s. So, yeah, I can, I can see. I don't think it was a stab, you know, really, necessarily. At Kiss uh, is kind of in a way, a, a, a fact of what was going on during that time period for KISS. Yeah, it, it wasn't a stab. I've got more than enough stab quotes against KISS by those guys. Um, <laughs> and that was actually a, one of the more politically or politically correct ones. Daniel, what are your thoughts mm-hmm. on that? Is KISS kind of a watered-down version of itself in 
1985, 86, 84, 85, 86, so the middle of the 80s. Do they feel watered down to you? Um, it's hard to argue with, with the voice of reason in this one, but because uh, <laughs> I think it's you just have to look at them to see that they are not leaders anymore. They are followers to some extent, even though I really pre- appreciate a lot of the music they did. Uh, Creatures of Night, Lick It Up, Animalize, and Asylum. That w- was uh, was this in '86. Well, then they had released uh, Asylum. I think they're all great albums but they had two choices to keep the makeup and try to do that and die or take another route try something else and uh, i think they did it quite well most of the time you know i didn't really fancy the outfits on the asylum tour and i might not have liked the uh, the high vocals that paul did on crazy nights uh, a year later but for the most part of the time i think they did a good job with what they had they 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 couldn't do the acdc thing and just sound the same all the time they would have played for in clubs from 82 and onwards i think Mm -hmm. Uh, so uh, they they surely followed other bands but but in in a good way at times Uh, and we have some great music from that time you know tears of falling hands of fire lick it up not for the innocent list goes on and on so uh, they did quite well but most bands they only have like five years when they are truly original then things starts to happen things start to happen they need to change and uh, aerosmith well you just have to look at them you know Get a Grip was quite good, but then they went off on the MTV trail, and uh, really, I, I don't know if they started that trend. I think they were quite, you know, just trying to move records, sell records, and uh, surely was a whole lot of ballads on, on those albums in, in the early 90s. So uh, most bands from the 70s needed to change, and Kiss did it because they more or less were forced to. Yeah, sure. I mean, that's very reasonable. I think Joe's comment actually reflects more on himself. I think he's kind of projecting, you know, his own opinion about his his band more so and just picking another band Mm -hmm. that had, you know, similar challenges in its personnel. So I don't take it as a dig. I take it more as a look at himself, because when you compare the music of Aerosmith, say, 1979, the last album he was involved in, Night in the Ruts, that was a powerful album. And then you go to Done With Mirrors, which is... You know, I, I love it, and it's got some really good bluesy, you know, rock on it. It's a, very much a watered-down version of that because they hadn't found themselves again. They never did, really, because they just went outside with outside songwriters, you know, that Kiss had used for a few years. So I think he's more commenting on himself because it. And again, I think we lack the objectivity look, to look at Kiss. And say, well, mm-hmm. Asylum's a really vibrant album when you compare it to, say, the first Kiss album. You know, it's still that New York rock. Um, so we can't really look at it at the, the same way that, you know, a non-Kiss fan, and Joe Perry was certainly not a massive Kiss fan, uh, did. Mark, bring some more reason into this. Well, the thing I find interesting about this comment is that it says, you know, that their comeback was very timely. From what I understand, there wasn't what comeback. There, they they didn't split. They didn't, you know, Aerosmith split up. They were they were a non-entity. They were gonzo, bye-bye. They came back. Kiss was alive and doing things for throughout the, all the 80s. Yeah, sure, maybe it wasn't 
as successful as it was in the 70s and stuff like that. But, you know, Paul reminds us numerous times throughout the years that, you know, he kept Kiss going. Now, Kiss never stopped. Kiss kept going. He kept it going and rolling throughout the 80s. So I don't know what this whole their comeback was very timely was about. I mean, thinking maybe he was not off the drugs yet completely. But, you know, it, it's it, it's just I just find that kind of odd that he said that because, you know, they weren't coming back. They were coming back. Aerosmith and whether it was watered down. Well, yeah. It was not by their choice. I think it was more just because of economics. They weren't selling as much. So you can't put on as big a show. You can't put on a show for a 20,000 seater when you're only playing to 5,000 people. And it costs a lot of money to do these kinds of shows too. So if they weren't pulling in that kind of money, you can't put on that kind of a show. So I think the watered down bit also is another kind of, you know, not a jab, but it seems like a little like shot in the ribs there a little bit. With that comment, but you know, Aerosmith had the one advantage over Kiss that they never were tied to any sort of gimmick. They didn't have any makeup to go and put on. They didn't have any kind of special costumes. They could just go on with their street clothes and play, and that was it. That was the Aerosmith look. It was just a pretty much a street look, and that was it. Except for Steven. Yeah. <laughs> you, can't, you can't wear ballerina shoes on the street. But uh, there you go. I I, I kind of get, you know, the casual perspective of Kiss, though, is that they did disappear in the United States between 1980 and late 1982 when they went back on the road. So I kind of get where Joe's coming from on that perspective, which, you know, again, as Kiss fans, it's kind of hard to put our, ourselves in the shoes of someone who wasn't watching the band. And maybe Joe Perry has never experienced the mighty elder. And that would change his opinion about Kiss. Probably Quite not. a lot. Well, no. We've heard the Hollywood vampires <laughs> yeah, and his solo albums. All right, so let's let's move on from there. Um, so following on, what are some of your favorite sequences of albums? So consecutive albums, one after the other, that went from stronger to stronger. That for you was like, wow, they really topped the last album with this release. And, um, you know, so a very positive follow-on. Ken gets to do something from the 70s, well, yeah, of course. yeah. Well, I have to look at it. Uh, I can't really look at it like, uh, you know, albums that came out before I even got into them. Uh, I can't really do that. Um, I think for me, I have to do it uh, when I got into Kiss and then each album and how they got stronger from album to album. Like, you know, this album was really good and then they, they just obliterated the next one um uh so i it's pretty hard uh i'm yeah. just gonna have to say hot hot in the shade you know i thought oh yeah it was pretty good now, now i don't look at it that, that good but i thought they obliterated that album with revenge when revenge came out i just thought man they really they really did a great job on that and now if i went back and really want to do it uh in the early 70s i'd probably think that you know rock and roll over was the one that you know they did pretty well with you know destroyer it's a kind of a different kind of producing you know they had a lot of good songs on there but then with rock and roll over they just you know that was that was the album to go to after that so i know that's how i look at it yeah Fair enough. I mean, for me, it's I have to go back to when I became a fan with, yeah. you know, 
Asylum, and the album that preceded it obviously was massive at the time. So, you know, for me, they blew that away with Asylum. Mm -hmm. um, I, I can't go back into the 70s and say, well, you know, Destroyer to rock and roll over, though that would be one that obviously could be picked. But for the ones that I experienced, you know, I'll go with Animal Eyes to Asylum. Right. And for the ones that I did not experience live and in Technicolor, Destroyer to rock, they, you know, Destroyer is a fantastic record. But for me, they blew that away completely by going back to their rough sound <laughs> and making Mark happy for rock and roll over. <laughs> Daniel. Yes. Well, uh, you stole my my thoughts uh, because I have to second you uh, on that because I also started with Animal Eyes and Asylum and I, I felt that Asylum was a stronger album uh, mostly because uh, Gene um, picked up the slack. You know, on Animal Eyes he didn't do that well. If he would have had Vinnie Vincent as a co-writer on Animal Eyes, I think it could have been a different story. But it didn't, and we all know what happened. And if you go back in time uh, to classic Kiss, I'd say the same thing. Destroyer, to me, is a great album, but uh, Rock and Roll Over is even better. Uh, so that's it. Nice. Okay, now things get interesting, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because I have to agree with you guys saying that you have to take it from the perspective of when you started getting into the band, right? Now, the funny thing is, as you guys know, I was introduced to Kiss pretty early. Like, I was pretty young. My sister, because her being so much older than me, was listening to them from way back from the beginning, you know? So, and I remember getting alive early on when it first came out. My sister got it for me. Like, it wasn't, it wasn't the year it came out she got it for me, but it was, like, early on in my, you know, teen years, right, when I got that. And uh, the, the first single I actually bought of my own when it came out was lick it up so i i was well aware of kiss at that point and we did end up getting lick it up the album when it came out that time i know jane got it right away so my threesome in a row because i i know that me and my sister used to talk about this all the time was we were so hyped up when those albums came out those three in particular that those have to be my three go-to which are lick it up Animalize because I remember when we got Animalize, we used to do this thing where we would uh, I don't know if you guys any, anybody back in Europe used to do this but we used to take blank cassettes and get little microphones and talk to our relatives on cassette and send the cassettes in the mail over back home and it, it was like instead of writing letters we would write these we would record these like 90 minute discussions about what's going on in a family and stuff like that but what we would do is we would also record what was happening in canada and stuff like, like like the hits you know so i remember putting on heavens on fire because jane had gotten animalized so we put that on a cassette for them so somewhere in czechoslovakia was a cassette with that on it you know mm -hmm. floating around really early so i know that was a big record for us we were listening to that all the time and then when asylum came out we we got that and i loved that record it's still my favorite kiss album without makeup to this day so those three definitely were how i viewed it as one better than the other than the other at that time when i was younger i actually re-watched the kiss faq kiss asylum episode the other day mm -hmm. and i was just smiling throughout it uh, it's just nice to feel that you're not alone liking uh, asylum uh, because i think it, asylum has had sort of a resurgence lately people 
like it more because if you go back 10 years, I, I didn't hear a whole lot of positive things about asylum the way we do now. So that's just a tip for you guys listening. Go and listen to that episode if you want some more asylum. Yeah, I think during COVID, when a lot of people have been locked down, maybe they've been, you know, digging into albums that they don't, you know, give as much time to, you know, yeah. just for something different, because all of the sameness is, you know, really kind of frustrating. I've been doing that with other bands' catalogs. I mean, obviously, again, the Aerosmith comes in, so I've been listening to the Geffen years, which I hate or hated with a passion to give them a second chance on some of those and some of the Dawkins albums. Um, from later on, I mean, I posted yeah. on Facebook the other day. I think Shadow Life, uh, whatever that one is, <laughs> I, I, I was giving another chance, and I actually found a few songs that if I do a playlist, will go in the playlist because again, that's what I don't care. You know, mm-hmm. a good a good song is a good song. All right, so on the other side of the coin of that is a pair of albums that you think went from great to absolutely horrible for Kiss. What would be their biggest drop-off in quality between two studio albums? Um, and I guess you don't have to stick it to when you were, you know, a fan or alive, you know. Mm-hmm. Maybe pick a couple for when you were a fan, the one that you kind of noticed the most. Like, oh my God, really, they were really flying in flying form just a couple of years ago. And now they're doing this. What the heck is going on? Mm. Um, and then one from the back catalog as well for those of yeah. us who otherwise wouldn't get to talk about them. Ken, let's start with you again. Uh, all right. So I'm not going to say the other because I, I, I like the elder. Um, so let's see. Um, I'm going to have to say, Going from uh, Lick It Up to Animalize, uh, I thought that I, cause I, you know, I, I love Lick It Up. I think it's just this great album. Yeah. You know, but that's two albums of Creatures of the Night and Lick It Up are just so good. And it was a major drop off. And yeah, that could be partly because of Gene. He wasn't, you know, into it at the time. He kind of he phoned it in. He was acting and, and that sort of thing. Uh, so his material wasn't his. You know, top is not uh, material at the time. So I'm going to have to say, yeah, look it up into uh, Animal Eyes. Nice. Mark, how about you? Well, um, if you're going to take it from the two different, <clears throat> excuse me, two different perspectives, um, I guess when I was, you know, listening to them and kind of, you know, more a current fan of it, uh, I would probably say that the biggest surprise to me and it and it still has been, and mainly I t- look at it from the from the perspective of production was from Crazy Nights to Hot in the Shade. I was like, wow, what a drop that was! Because here we had such a polished produced record. You know, you can say whatever you want about the songs, and you know they're bubblegummy or they're not as you know hard hitting or whatever. But you know, to Hot in the to Hot in the Shade is just you know a very flat sounding record. You know, the fact that it is clearly demos that were just you know spit shined a little bit to make it you know passable as a album release you know that to me is very clearly a drop off in uh significance but i i I would be i would be disappointing my fans out there if i didn't say that you know dress to kill and then that horrid putrid of destroyer that came after it was was a definite drop off in quality in every sense of the word and writing and production everything i mean 
who puts piano chords underneath Paul Stanley's guitar chords? I mean, come on. What was Bob Ezrin thinking here? This is just unbelievable, that album. You know, live, it's a different story. There's no piano bopping along underneath and stuff like that. But, you know, I, like I said, Paul, uh, Paul, Paul, I'm not going to blame him, but Bob, you know, he's done some great records. You know, there's a lot of Floyd records I love that he's done. But what he was thinking when he did Destroyer is just, well, I mean, there's a lot of cocaine. But, you know, I just think that it's not a, just not his best work. In fact, it's probably his worst work. But I, I am very thankful, Julian, for the fine, fine, fine gold album that I have on my wall. Thank you, sir. You, you haven't drawn on it with crayons, Bob. <laughs> Written rock and roll over it. <laughs> <laughs> Do the little. <laughs> All right, yeah. that looks. That looks. No, he, he probably took it out and put a Project Gemini centering on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> dreams right dreams yeah for me i mean i could easily go with you know everyone's heard my story of you know becoming a fan with asylum and then going and putting crazy nights on on the walkman and having a complete wtf moment but i think the the biggest decrease in kind of quality or the biggest wtf moment that i've ever had is going from revenge to Uh carnival of souls um, yeah. as much as I like material on Carnival of Souls I remember the first few listens of that when it was circulating as a bootleg were like wow because <laughs> you know I, I was listening to Nirvana and a lot of Nirvana and I didn't make the connection between that and kind of the Alice in Chains um, kind of grungy sound gardeny type thing that they were going for direction wise which is completely different to me anyway than Nirvana yeah. um, even to this day I've got Alice in Chains greatest hits and I can't make it through the whole double CD um, it, it's just too much of it does not appeal to me you know, whereas there are a few songs I really do like but when we go from Revenge I, I know I always kind of make fun of Lonnie for his love of the album and whatnot, but it still was an extraordinarily strong album in terms of its production, in terms yeah. of its craft, and everything that goes along with that. And going from that to a dirgeful, um, multi generational cassette on top of the dirge as well, yeah. it, to the sound of the drums being like wet cardboard boxes. Um, <laughs> Bruce has a lot of good guitars, and yeah. Bruce plays a lot of good bass. But Paul singing deep, low vocals, a la Gene, it's like, to this day, Carnival of Souls is kind of tough. And that's the only one I I can really think of. I can't go back into the 70s and, you know, if I think of some, like, declines, I, I would think of, like, Rock and Roll Over to Love Gun where you go from that really rugged, rough rock sound into the highly polished. It's a reverse Nevison. In, in some ways, because uh, you're going to that super polished thing that took off all the edge, but it's still got really good songs compared to Crazy Nights. So um, that that would be the only other one that really comes kind of close. So that's my thoughts on that. Daniel is looking like he wants to redo his list now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you stole my my pick once again. But but I think I think it's. Uh... 
when you live it, it's hard, it's it's much stronger because I can clearly look at the 70s, eight, uh, 70s albums and see that there was a drop off from from uh, Destroyer to Love Gun and to Love Gun from Love Gun to Dynasty in my opinion. But uh, I clearly remember first getting Revenge and probably not my favorite album when it comes to songs. But sonically, I'd put it in maybe even first place. Uh, maybe Rock and Roll Over first place and then Revenge. It sounded so modern. And uh, you have to put it in perspective because back then, everyone around me were listening to Metallica, the Black Album. And uh, the, that was the sound that was cool back then. And when I heard Unholy... Man, it sounded good. And um, the whole album sounds great. Um, even the record jam, I think, that they picked the drums from, from 80 or 81, whenever he did that one. I think that one sounds as well, well as, sounds well also. But, um, and the ante- anticipation for the new album. You know, they went from Hot in the Shade, which, as you said, sounded like a piece of crap. And then they... Uh, had t- revenge, which which sounded so great, and I remember, we, and we had to wait a long time as well uh, for the next studio album. It felt like that anyway back in the day. Yeah. Um, so the anticipation was real high, and you looked at some of the titles, the t- titles uh, like hate and stuff like that, and. I was thinking, man, this might be like unholy once again, but even better. And then it was the exact same reaction as you had, Julian. I got a bootleg of that one. Uh, and I, I was hoping that it was the sound of the bootleg that um, made the album bad, but but it wasn't. Uh, uh, the sound wasn't much better when they released the official thing. And um, I was greatly disappointed. And it was probably the last time I had my hopes up real high for a Kiss album. So uh, the devastation when you when you realized that it wasn't a great album was just horrible. Yeah, I, I remember getting the promos in from Phonogram in London for Carnival of Souls. I was so excited. I was like, oh, this is going to sound fantastic, like Revenge with those songs. It's <laughs> going to be click play. What? It really does sound like that? what the heck so yeah it's really funny because toby wright is not exactly a bad engineer or a bad mixer i mean you know the work that he's done before has been good i mean corn sounds for for as much as i don't like corn the sound of some of the records are pretty good sonically i mean i don't know what happened with you know with the with that kiss record but i mean it's just sounds terrible and i mean if that record wasn't done then my initial pick for a downplay would have been from like revenge to psycho circus. Cause I really don't like psycho circus as a record. I think that would have been a drop in my opinion from revenge to psycho circus, but because we have carnival in there, it's like, mm, you can't really do that. Right. Got it. I carnival. think uh, Bruce, had the Bruce is, of, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I just said Bruce has mentioned in some interviews that they, uh, really had some troubles in the studio uh, between Gene and the producer. Gene was like moving the whatever you call it. Baders? Yeah. And Toby said, well, you can't do that. Sure, I can. And, and you know, they, they 
they had some troubles there, so I guess mm. uh, they weren't on the same page, so so to speak. Yeah. What was I thinking? Oh yeah, the uh, Carnival Souls. If it sounded like the had the production values of Psycho Circus, I'd be fine with that as well because that has a brighter, kind of more well, more trebly kind of kind of sound. Well, yeah. Fairburn did good on that. I think sound-wise, it's good. It's just the songs. I think it was a double disappointment. The fact that you know you, it's clearly not Kiss playing on it, but it's just some of the songs. Just I just they didn't connect with me. That's all I think it was. You know. So none of us went into the 2000s for any of our kind of transitional mm. albums. When we think mm. about Psycho Circus to Sonic Boom, is that an up or a down for you? I mean, an up. Yeah, it's an up for Fairly me an too. Up. Yeah, e- even with the production debate around Sonic Boom yeah. and the yeah. Sonic, the Sonics yeah. of Sonic Boom. Yeah, I I think so. I mean. The first time I put it on, I think I, I always go by first reaction. When I first got it and put it in, I was kind of pleasantly surprised. Clearly, it was a, an attempt at 70s Kiss. It clearly was. I mean, just the, the riffing and the and the solos that Tommy did were clearly Ace-inspired and, you know, influenced and stuff like that. And, you know, they had a they had a Peter song, I, a.k.a. Eric Singer. They had a Tommy song, like an Ace song. You know, so th- clearly they were trying to, you know refertilize that ground again right and i didn't have really any problem with that because for once there was a band that i would that i would listen to that you know promised a return to an old form and actually did it you know i was suffering with rush always saying we're going to do another record it sounds like moving pictures and never getting it getting presto and all these other records like this doesn't sound anything like moving pictures you know so finally there was a band that said we're going to go back to our older ways and they released a record that actually did satisfy that you know craving that i had of that sort of style of music so i i didn't mind it i mean sure you know now the sort of engineer producer side of me will probably say yeah it's a little brick walled and you know it's a little hard to hear on headphones after all but i think my first reaction wasn't that it was just like wow okay this is pretty cool it sounds like a 70s you know throwback record yeah the sonic boom i don't have a problem so much with the production but after that, I mean, uh, Monster, that album, that I have a big problem with the production. <laughs> Talking about Brick Walled, I mean, that is all the way, <laughs> all the way, 100% Brick Walled. Uh, that totally, pretty much ruins that album for me. There are, because there's some really good songs on there uh, that I like, but the production just kills it. And if there's an album that needs to be remastered, that's it. That's the one. I mean, Sonic Boom for me brought me back into fandom because I had given up on the band. Mm-hmm. Uh, Psycho Circus to me was, uh, except for a few Paul songs, I felt it was really awful. And then they just did the same thing all over again on the tours. Nothing new happened. Well, they tried some new uh, some new uh, songs on the I think it was 04 tour, uh, Rock the Nation or whatever it was called. Yeah. But it wasn't enough, and it felt like they was were just you know f- uh, going out on a what do you say fizzle. It was mm-hmm. nothing happening, and I I, I I I almost stopped listening to to them completely. But then with Sonic Boom. 
it was clear that they tried to do the 70s thing again. And I think it was a good idea. They should have done it with Psycho Circus. Uh, and then maybe they could have, you know, built on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, 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 so for me, it was a ticket back into Kiss, uh, and uh, I've been been interested ever since. I wouldn't mind a remix of Monster and Sonic Boom in the hands of Michael James Jackson. Oh yeah, yeah. tell me that. I, 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 th- I, th- I think he could work well with both of those, rather than you know going to any of the other historic producers that you know the band have worked with. But you know, don't know big difference remixing versus producing. And you're, Mark, were you bashing on Presto? Yeah, I hate Presto. It's what? My least favorite. Yeah, I hate that record. It's you you like Hold Your Fire more than Presto? Oh, any day of the week. Wow. And and Power Windows is probably one of my favorite 80s Rush record. Wow. I just don't know what to do with Ly- that. Lyrically, okay, I'm just going to say this. Lyrically, you couldn't touch Neil Peart on Power Windows and Hold Your Fire. His lyrics, nobody had lyrics as good as that. Okay, well, before we turn this into the raw, the rush <laughs> FAQ <laughs> podcast, <laughs> that's interesting. Uh, okay, so let's do a couple other topics from the board. And okay. you know, I always hate when people call people a hater or why do people hate on Kiss keyboards? I don't think people do hate on Kiss keyboards. I think some people like them sometimes, and sometimes don't like them. Um, so, Ken, what are your thoughts about Keyboard Kiss, for that matter? I mean, are, are there any songs Depends. that you might say that you hate? Or are there simply songs that you don't think keyboards work on and shouldn't have been anywhere near? Yeah, well, okay. So, if you go back to, like, uh, Christine 16, yeah, that's fine. It, it worked. It actually fits the song, it, and it, it worked well. Uh, there's nothing fancy about the keyboards on it, but it but it worked. Um, uh, but going down the road and and uh, and looking at Crazy Nights, uh, that's that's one I have a problem with. I have a big problem with the you know the, <laughs> the keyboards. <Some. laughs> it's it's just not enough guitar. <laughs> I, not enough guitar uh, on that. Uh, I rather have guitars in the place of the keyboard, playing whatever the keyboard is playing, but have the guitar play it. Uh, I think that album would be a lot stronger, definitely. So sounds like someone agrees with your opinion of Crazy Nights. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and this actually ties in a, a little bit, obviously, with the passing of Phil Ashley, the keyboard player who you know worked with Paul a lot oh, yeah. during the mid to late '80s. Um, and I, I think I've said it before. I would love to hear a treatment of Tears Are Falling with a little bit more emphasis on keyboards, because that was something that he said in the interview that I, I used for the last episode. Um, that he had tried out and he and Paul had sat there working on it, trying to figure out how to make keyboards work with that. And then you go to crazy nights where Paul was working a little bit more directly with keyboards to write songs. So you see like the evolution there between Mm -hmm. trying to fit keyboards into a kiss song rather than writing a kiss song around keyboards or with keyboards in mind. So I, I think the keyboards on, um, crazy nights, 
In some cases, they're way too in the front. But on other ones, and the material kind of speaks to it, Reason to Live couldn't be any other way than how it sure. is and is a perfect right. blend for me or my taste between mm-hmm. electric and guitar and also with a power ballad. Danny, what, what are your thoughts on hating on keyboards? Well, I think now, nowadays people hate on keyboards because uh, when they hear keyboards, they're, they're thinking about 80s pop music a whole lot and they don't want Kiss to be associated with 80s pop uh, but to me, Kiss never really m- managed to use the keyboard to enhance the songs. It was mostly playing chords. Uh, you know, Christine 16 is like sort of a riff. It's two chords, but but uh, it's sort of a riff. But mostly they used it to to. to uh, it was made to be in the background. So so uh, uh, they didn't do anything like jump. Van Halen's jump, where you mm-hmm. instantly know the keyboards, um, but it felt like it mainly was a way of backing up the guitars most of the time. And the keyboards on two of my favorite tours, Revenge and Hot in the Shade, was they were used frequently, but you, it doesn't really disturb the. <laughs> it doesn't really mix with 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 the Kiss sound. It's uh, in the back, uh, they play along with the guitars and uh, cover up for Paul when he's jumping around. So, so that's the way I like keyboards in Kiss. I really don't want them to be up front. And to me, Crazy Nights might be the only album when, when they are used too much. Then they have some awful keyboard effects on like Dynasty and Unmasked. They are totally, you know... Um, uh, what do you say? They are, um, they feel old. I mean, they are from that mm. era and they, they were never used again. Some effects and stuff that, uh, I dated. don't care for, but dated, that's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. Thank you. So, uh, um, to me, kiss is better without keyboards. Yeah. Yeah. Harry gorilla music. Now let's talk to a keyboardist. <laughs> Well, I look at it this way, like the example of Christine 16, to many people, they don't look at that as keyboards, they look at that as piano, right? So then, so sometimes yeah. that, gets a, that gets a pass, where if you hear a song that has a piano on it, or if you, like Cinderella, they would do like a ballad with piano, that's always over, you know, not put in the same category because it's a piano, it's very more bluesier and, you know. So you can always look at it from that perspective. Same with like, you know, every time I look at you, there's a piano in that. And that doesn't get nearly as harshly criticized, I don't think, than let's say the keyboards on, you know, Crazy Nights. Like some of my favorite music has keyboards in there. Like, you know, Turn On The Night is one of my favorite Kiss songs and that has rampant keyboards all over it. But to me, it fits. I mean, I can't imagine that song without the keyboards, to be quite honest. And, you know, some of the keyboards are a little jarring like daniel said on you know dynasty like look look at a you know i was made for loving you there's a that little keyboard line that's going on in there very disco-ish very you know jumps out at you but i mean daniel also made an excellent point too that you know do do kiss fans realize how often keyboards have been in kiss music like as far back as like 87 i think when they did that tour i remember seeing uh that german festival tour that they did and you see that keyboard guy side stage playing along the whole time. 
with them. He's he's playing every song. He's playing in Deuce. He's playing in everything. You know, there's keyboards on everything. You know, if you were to get a cassette mix, like a soundboard tape of those shows, and, you know, you could probably hear some of those keys on there. You'd be like, oh, my God, what the hell is going on here? It's it's pretty loud. I mean, one of the great examples of this, too, is uh, I was watching the Moscow Peace Festival uh, show video that was on and they put on Ozzy Osbourne. I was like, all right, Ozzy. And they did, I don't know. They opened with, and what happens? He starts with the riff. And all of a sudden it comes in all this loud organ, all these loud organ stabs. I'm like, what the hell is that? You know, it's so mixed so badly. It's all keyboards for the first two, three songs of that. And Zach Wilde's like head banging with his left plug and barely hear him. So, you know, sometimes the keyboards can be, uh, a detriment, but sometimes like Kiss, we're trying to use it to fill in space, you know, fill in, you know, those parts where, you know, Paul's going around and doing his handshakes and not playing half the time or doing a leapfrog or something in the air and missing half the notes, right? So, you know, that's what the keyboards were there for. I know Derek Sherinian mentioned that when he was on with them for Revenge, I think he was touring with them. and said that how many times he had to cover up stuff when Paul was too busy, you know, trying to impress women front row, right? So, it, it, I think that it's important to take a look at what the keyboards were used for. If they were used in studio and, you know, became a very big part of the sound, okay, maybe it's not to everyone's taste, but the keyboards could be used to make a show sound much better and enhance the live concert experience as well. Yeah, and they had piano yeah. going right back to the beginning, nothing to lose, yeah, for so. mm. you know, and then it's the kind of the honky, the, the Jerry Lee stabs for Christine 16, then you mm-hmm. get then you get keyboards with the solo albums, you get keyboards on Dynasty Unmasked, you, know, you get full-on organ on, you know, The Elder, so yeah, it, it's not been an uncommon <laughs> thing. I, I, I love you talking about Ozzy at the Moscow Peace Festival, and you're missing out on Zach Wilde's guitar. I mean, instead of, I just to see him doing pinch harmonics and hear nothing but keyboards, to me would yeah. be a blessing. Um, <laughs> not well, I think, Mark, you mentioned something that Kiss keyboards in the studio. Uh, you, you can't count Crazy Nights because that's that album was written around keyboards. So, of course, uh, most of the songs, it feels like you need the keyboards because yeah. it was written in a whole different way. So mm-hmm. sometimes on that album, the keyboards are needed. But I can't really think of any other album where they really need the keyboards. And if you listen to I Was Made For Loving You from Dynasty, and then you listen to I Was Made For Loving You on a live three, Clearly, a live three version is a whole lot better, even if that might have been done in the studio as well. But but uh, it's a rocker, I was made for loving you. And the keyboard just made it sound that was just That was just clearly a production uh, sweetening yep. thing to try to make it part of that time Disco. period, I think. Yes. Right? I would love a board tape of Schweinfurt. Which is the yeah. the German yeah. festival show yep. where you can see Gary Corbett mugging on the side yeah. of the stage, and he was never seen again on camera uh, no. <laughs> at a Kiss show after that. Oh. He enjoyed himself a little bit too much. Yeah. Um, yeah, let's just wrap up today with uh, some thoughts. Eric Carr's seventieth birthday would have been. Uh, a couple of days ago, July the 12th, which, mm-hmm. it, you know, Gene hitting 70, Peter 74, going to be 75, Peter Chris 75 this year. Wow. Um, what are your thoughts on Eric Carr turning 70? 
Um, I'll start with you, Daniel, because obviously that was our era. Yeah, I, I remember the day he passed. Uh, you know, the same day as Freddie Mercury, which which um, made it. You know, people didn't really know that he died. Uh, so that was unfortunate. But I think it's a testament to the Kiss Army that he still talked about. Uh, his uh, feels like he's still present. He feels like a part of the band, even though he hasn't been around for decades. And on the other hand, it feels real strange that he would be 70 because... I'm sure you, you, you've you uh, experienced this before, at least I have, you know, with friends or family that die young. Uh, they never get old. So I guess that's mm -hmm. the only blessing with, with that thing happening. And the same goes with Eric Carr. You know, to me, he, he will always be like 41 or whatever it was. And I just reacted when I saw Eric Carr 70 today. In my mind, he was nowhere near that age so it was kind of a shocker but but uh, but but also to tie into what you said in the beginning uh, the guy who died uh, they are starting to drop like flies now uh, uh, our old heroes so um, it's also um, ties into that you know you 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 think of how long will the guys be around you know a decade maybe not I mean, the clock is ticking, so it's kind of sad. But but um, I think uh, the Kiss Army ha have uh, they have managed to to keep the memory alive, and their core is still alive and vibrant. So uh, uh, that's good. Yeah, next year will be the 30th anniversary of his passing, and that's just you know mind-boggling. Uh, I think Daniel, you hit the nail on the head that he's forever young in some ways and were it not for those photos of him from the god gave rock and roll to you two video shoot where he is gaunt he's clearly wearing a wig uh, he's clearly lost a lot of you know muscle mass and weight then my mm. image for him forever would just be the hot in the shade era of him I, I think we've talked about what ifs before, you know, would he still be in the band? No, no chance. I think he would have been out of the band within 18 months of the end of the, the tour. And that's perfectly fine. And it's, it's hard to, you know, look at him and think of him at 70 because he has been gone all these years. And, you know, you see Gene and his, you know, and his age, you know, showing a bit more, you see Peter and, you know, when you see him and you see him vibrant and, you know, animated, it's hard to just associate. He's 75. It's like, Oh my goodness, look at him. You know, he, he's mm -hmm. smiling. He's happy. So age, as I guess we get older as well, our perspectives on age change, um, you know, approaching yeah. 50, passing 50, seeing parents and loved ones, you know, the cycle, it, it, it's all tough. Ken, your thoughts on Eric Carr? Yeah, well, Eric Carr is always going to be uh, like uh, Deanna said, you know, the fans are keeping him, his memory alive. Um, and he, he, it does live throughout through all the music that's out there that he recorded on all those albums and his drumming, his singing, and then, the, and then the videos, we have that to, you know, go back and look at. Um, uh, I, I never met him in person, unfortunately, but I, you could tell, and you've heard the stories, that he was just a great, nice, you know, person or soul. Um, 
and especially to us to the fans um i would have loved to have met him um i think it would have been a great experience um but having said that you know i i've always respected him i thought he was a great great guy great drummer and and a great person and uh you know i I love seeing him i i I wish he was here i really do wish he was here who knows what would have happened um Maybe gone on to other bands. I'm sure he would have been in the music business. Uh, who knows? He could have been playing for Ace on some solo albums and stuff like that. I, I wouldn't doubt it at all. Um, so, yeah, he's he's sorely missed though. Mark. Yeah, I think that uh, you guys hit on a couple of really important points. That you know, Eric Carr will live forever with Kiss fans because Kiss fans just bring them up so often i mean just today i was listening on my way to uh to take the dog to the vet i was listening to the july edition of the kiss room and they played you know uh eyes of love from eric carr's Mm -hmm. solo record stuff and uh, they play eric carr stuff frequently on these kinds of podcasts so his memory is always around because like you said he was always in fan circles known as the most approachable and friendliest member of kiss. I mean, everybody seems to have a story about other members of kiss where they're like, you know, they had great experiences and then this one or two bad ones, but nobody seems to ever have said a bad thing about Eric Carr ever. There was never a bad Eric Carr experience. And that speaks a lot about the kind of person that he was and how much he took the band seriously. And more importantly, how much he took the fans important to him, you know, how important the fans were to him. So I think that's why he will not uh, fade from memory. I mean, unfortunately, the same can't be said for people like Mark St. John, for example. I mean, you you hear about him, but nowhere near as frequently as you hear about Eric Carr, right? And, uh, you know, even even, what's funny is that even lately you hear more about Bob Kulik, who had recently passed away, than you hear about Mark St. John, you know? And that's maybe because of other reasons that were not good, you know, the little tirades near the end. But still, I mean, Mark St. John, I think, deserves, you know, a little bit more spotlight on, you know, being in Kiss. I, I think he deserves a little bit more. I mean, he, he wasn't in there as long term as Eric, obviously. But, you know, still, I mean, he was a member of Kiss. And I know there's a lot of people who liked Mark St. John as well. But, you know, it is it is what it is. And I I just think it's interesting how perspectives change as people get older and i am curious to see uh, how things play out over the years because you know they always talk about how you know people try to mend bridges in their older days and try to you know get back into some sort of communication with people that they haven't been in communication with whether it was because of arguments or something bad happened you know let's see what'll happen over the next course of the years with people in kiss you know will they patch things up or you know Will something happen amongst the KISS community? Who knows? You never know, you know, what age can do to people. I mean, I, I was very happy to see Peter Chris do that little, you know, karaoke performance of his song there the other day when I put it on. I was like, wow, it's pretty cool. And he looked very happy doing it. And that was one of the things that made me smile and watching it was that how how fantastic he, he looked after he was like, so, you know, like, yeah, that one really good after he sang it kind of deal. So, you know, good for him, you know. Uh, it's good to see that he's, you know, having his old age in a good way. You know what I mean? And hopefully, you know, we can wish that for everybody else, too. If you're interested in Eric Carr's drumming, there's a beautiful podcast from that New York 
guy uh, who who interviewed Vinnie Vincent a couple of times. I don't remember his name, but he did an episode on um, on Eric Carr, and there's a guy in that episode who explains the Eric Carr techniques and what he loves about them. It's just mm. an awesome episode. So I don't, you must know what that guy is called. He My has brother. a real, yeah, New York accent. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It sounds like, like someone out of Goodfellas when he talks. <laughs> kind of fun. <laughs> no, Mike's a good guy and uh, glad to see yeah. him, him doing something like that for a, great a podcast. Yep. Very, very good. But I, I think just uh, to end on one of Mark's points, I, I think Mark St. John will never get the same level of respect. Um, as even Bob Keelick, because Bob played on Alive 2 and other things. Uh, he, Mark didn't write. He barely played live with the band. He he really was a footnote, unfortunately, and that's not to speak ill of the dead. And, of course, you know, the, the drug issues later on uh, and everything. Yeah. I, I, th- I would like to think that people who do have bad stories about Eric have just kept them to themselves, you know, and you don't always have to explain your bad ones I, I i'm still shocked when anyone says that they had a bad experience of bruce like he like he must have been grumpy that day well come on everyone's <laughs> everyone's human so i don't doubt it all right that's a whole bunch of random topics primarily from the message board inspired by all of you so thank you keep going with posts that i don't have to delete and that we can discuss on the book on this on this show <laughs> much prefer discussing them than deleting them and banning the authors so there we go for this week from ken from mark daniel and myself thanks for joining us and we'll see you soon take care thank you for spending time listening to the kiss faq podcast today all sales are final there are no refunds If you'd like, look us up on Facebook or come over to the KISS FAQ message board and discuss the topic we've broadcast today. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes, Spreaker, or wherever you've listened to the show. We hope you'll join us again.